Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Hello. It is May the 23rd, 2022. The headlines and the images uh, on the front pages of the world's newspapers uh, today um, seem to be not futuristic, but backward looking. The images from the Ukraine remind us perhaps of the Cold War, the post-war history of Europe, images of poverty, of um, destruction. Um, and we've done some shows about thinking backwards. We take it for granted in America that everything is supposed to move forwards. But the political economist, for example, Helen Thompson was on the show uh, a couple of months ago talking about how Putin was returning the world to the what she called the hard times of the 1970s at the heart of the Cold War. She has a new book out, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Uh, it's a book, lots of text, but no <laughs> images. And uh, perhaps in parallel with Thompson's book, we have a really interesting new collection of images from the Cold War from one of America's leading photojournalists, Arthur Grace. It's a Cold War album. It's a beautiful book, and I'm thrilled that Arthur is joining us from Ojai, in California, just down the road from San Francisco. Uh, Arthur, welcome. When you look at the headlines of Ukraine and all this destruction, um, it, it somehow, in an odd way, is in keeping with your new book, this Cold War album. It seems as if the Cold War hasn't ended yet, although we assume that 1989 was the end of history. It actually was the beginning. We had Francis Fukuyama, the guy who wrote End of History, on the show last week. Yeah, you can easily get back to that time period. Um, I think especially uh, in Russia right now, uh, they're losing all their Western, uh, you know, Apple and uh, McDonald's and everything is leaving. And as we pull out and the West pulls out, they could easily fall back into the times of uh, deprivation and uh, lack of modernization. Um, this is on the horizon for them. This keeps going. Yeah, it's not just that. It's a period of, of innocence. One of the most interesting photos I thought uh, in your new book, uh, this wonderful collection, uh, Communism's uh, a Cold War album, was this photo. I think it's from the 1970s in Red Square in Moscow of a group of rather thuggish-looking young Soviet or Russian boys staring at girls. Um in an odd way, uh, the promise, perhaps even the violent promise of this photo has been realized in the Russia of Putin, do you think? Well, in, uh, in what regard specifically? Well, I think that the, 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 the Cold War period was one in which um, it was presumed, I mean, communism was itself built in the Enlightenment tradition of progress, of leaving behind history. And what Russia has done under Putin is return to the violent history of the Russian Empire. And this photo, particularly in Red Square, seems to suggest that. Maybe I'm misreading it. Right. No, no, no. Yeah, no, you're not. Um, 
what's particularly striking about this photograph to me when I took it at the time is the lack of Western clothes. Okay. This is, they were always trying, these guys are trying to be cool. He's got striped pants. He's got a shirt, uh, you know, with a wide collar. Um, when you went into Russia at that time, the Soviet Union, um, they were always trying to emulate the look in the West as best they could because they didn't have, you know, designer jeans. They didn't have what was going on in uh, London, bell-bottom pants. Um, they were doing the best they could with what they had because Western goods and Western clothing were not going into the Soviet Union, that's for sure. So what they did is uh, manufacture uh, clothes to copy what the West had. But the attitude of teenagers is the same all over the world um, at that time in 1977 as it is today. They're, they're looking at girls. That's what they're there for and trying to look cool. And um, it made no difference what was happening politically or the regime they were living under. And by the way, I suddenly realized that a lot of people are going to be listening to this out there um, rather than seeing the people... Uh, who have the good fortune to be watching this, you can see Arthur's photos. Um, of course, if you, if you want to see them properly, you need to buy this wonderful new book, Communism's A Cold War Album. Um, Arthur, as I said, you're one of America's leading photojournalists. You've done a huge amount of work. This photo of, uh, I think it was, is it Bush Sr. leaving? Uh, is very famous. You did all sorts of work in America. You've had books about America. Uh, books about the coal miner strike, all sorts of images. What brought you to do a book about the Cold War? You spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe too, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, at the time I was working for Time Magazine when I first went into uh, West Berlin to work with a Time correspondent uh, to cover stories in Eastern Europe, uh, I went and covered all the different countries, Romania, Yugoslavia, et cetera. And as is the case in news magazines, working for news magazines, you know, a tiny proportion of what you shoot ever winds up in the magazine. That's just the way it is. So you get the outtakes back and maybe they go to your agency, your photo agency for resale to magazines around the world. And then uh, they come back to you. And I kept, for 12 years, all my outtakes from all the places I've been, especially Poland, and uh, put them away. And with the thought in the back of my mind that someday I'd get back to that work because it was a period in history that I had covered, but my view of that period of history was you know, in a, a locker uh, in uh, files and we're just sitting there. So, when COVID came um, and we were all locked up, I thought it was a perfect time to go back to look at my archives and see what I had and what I could do with it for a book. Um, mainly because it's a period in history that needs to be remembered. And there weren't a ton of photographers there uh, running around these countries because you needed a special visa. Um, if you know, a journalist visa was obviously the best way to go into these countries, not as a tourist, but I did that at times. Um, and there was also at that point when COVID uh, happened, um, what was going on in this country was really on my mind, and everybody's talked about it. They 
rumblings of autocracy or autocracy coming back and and every you know people are worried and look what's happening big lie etc and that really motivated me to uh, to take some forward action on this and say um well maybe what i can do in this book is give people a look at what it was like in the 70s and 80s it's not a pretty picture uh, careful well, it's not I actually don't agree, Arthur. I think it's it's a complicated picture, like any pictures. Like, and you're a photographer; you know this much better than I do. All photos are complicated. I, I love this image of an inner courtyard. Um, the headline in the New York Times to a review a piece about your book was, "You will stay silent." Photographs from behind the Iron Curtain, but. The idea of the Iron Curtain being this brutal place where everyone had to stay silent wasn't really true, was it? Well, there was always you were being watched. Okay, forget journalists. That was a given when you went into these countries. Sometimes it was overt. Sometimes it was covert uh, in terms of you know being mic'd or mirrors, two-way mirrors, the old joke stuff. But for people who live in these countries they had to be careful who they were talking to, especially in places like East Germany. Everybody was an informer, or they weren't sure who was a friend, really a friend, or who was somebody who may be still talking to the police, or state security, or something like that. I don't have personal knowledge of you know this, except the people that I met, and how they approached me, uh, and how they behaved. Um, there was certainly an apprehension and a fear of seeing uh, somebody from the West uh, approach them or try to talk to them. Um, and that was a reasonable assumption on their part. But the people were wary. That's the best way to put it. The people I met, the people I saw, um, because of what had happened to them or a neighbor or somebody else, uh, that they want to know who you were and were very careful about well, what they said, et cetera. And one interesting uh, factor of, of working with a camera and behind the iron curtain at that time was that no one ever challenged me for taking their photograph. Um, they didn't say, stop, what are you doing? Uh, they didn't run away, turn away. They didn't question me. Now, sometimes I had a quote tour guide with me, a minder, um, but even when I was alone, they didn't know who you were, or where you were coming from. And um, there was, there's a reason for that. They were worried that said something to do with the authorities, the state. You know, they were confused who I was with a camera uh, pointing at them or talking to them and taking their picture. Uh, so there's a reason why people behave that way, um, that with that apprehension. I'm not as, as a photographer... I can see that in some of the photos. People aren't looking at your camera. Here's a wonderful photo, the classic Cold War photo of women queuing in line for food. Um, this was a perennial feature of Eastern Europe in the Cold War. Did people look in the camera or look away from the camera in a different way in Eastern Europe in the Cold War period than they do now when they're so obsessed with having their photograph taken, and indeed of taking other people's photos? Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's completely different today in that 
as I said, I worked without uh, impediment and I was able to do what I wanted to do. It's the exact opposite today, regardless of selfies and everybody with their cell phone. The attitude of the, of the public all over the world, basically the Western world, is, is why are you taking my picture? Who are you? Where are you from? Um, go away. Who are you with? You're confronted all the time. I couldn't work today. Uh, yeah, I was in Belgrade probably 10 years ago, and there was a group of rather thuggish-looking men, and I started taking their photo. We were all in a cafe, and after I took the photo, they came up and demanded the film. They demanded that I deleted it. It's not unusual, whereas, right, in the 1970s, that overt thuggishness, which I think is so much a feature, particularly of Southeastern Europe, didn't exist back in the 70s, did it? No, no, it didn't. Um, they, they were curious, you know, if you actually were getting a conversation, they were curious as to where you were from. They were, they didn't meet a lot of people from the West. Um, and so that curiosity came out. They were always friendly, uh, nice people, good people, um, generous. Um, if they had food or drink, they invited you in. Um, and once they knew who you were, uh, so you, you had none of that. It was so innocent back then. Uh, my favorite photo in the whole book is a very personal one for me. This is a photo of a young man in the streets of Sarajevo in 1983. I actually lived for a year in Sarajevo, 82, 83. This isn't me, but it could have been me. Um, how, how did you end up in Sarajevo in, in 1983, Arthur? That was really out of the way back then. This was before the Civil War. This was right. after Tito died, but uh, right. there was right. no promise of war. Well, it's not, it's not an exciting story. I was doing a walk up to the Winter Olympics for Time magazine. So I, they sent me to Sarajevo. I was in Belgrade, Sarajevo for two weeks. What they call a walk up is doing the lifestyle of people, what the streets look like, preparations for the Olympics, that sort of thing. Um, it was right before New Year's, Christmas over Christmas and New Year's. And that's why I was there. But obviously I photographed everything that caught my eye that I thought was uh, interesting or unusual, not just, you know, preparations, venues, uh, you know, the opening. And you ceremony. capture the, and again, I got to be careful with this word. I don't want to sound too romantic, too much of a nostalgist, but you, you capture the innocence of this period. Americans tend to fetishize Cold War Eastern Europe as if everything was political, but this wasn't the case. Here's a wonderful image. Uh, I think it's from Transylvania of farmers yeah. still working with horses. Um, there are a number of, 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 of other photos like this of agricultural life. I suppose you could probably still find this in Eastern Europe, but back then, it was still, in some senses, a very traditional society, wasn't it? Yeah, very much so. Uh, the family, the family unit, especially on the farms. Um, but the few of the photographs you showed, some are from the 70s, but the one of the father and son uh, still plowing with the horse uh, in the fields is uh, 1989. And um, that was, they didn't have tractors. Where, where was that taken? That, the, this oh, one. Rural, that's from rural Poland. Right. And that's, um, you know, 1989, many of them still didn't have uh, modern farm equipment um, and got their goods to market with uh, wagon, horse and wagons. 
Um, others, of course, did have tractors, and you'd see them on the highway, tractors going by, and then a string and a stream of uh, horses and wagons with a couple, you know, husband and wife, father and son, bringing their food to market. And this is in the 80s. So it was very unusual, um, but that was the fact. It was not modernized. Yeah, and your genius as a photographer is to capture the romance, the beauty, the promise, even in the worst cases. Here are a couple of kids playing table tennis on a concrete table tennis table without a net in a concrete park outside the classic concrete uh, buildings of Eastern Europe, those long, those huge tower blocks that existed outside every city. Here's we have one very good image. Um, right, is the, this what uh, you're looking for, uh, Arthur, when you, as a, as a photographer, this sort of image of... Yes. Which yes. is it, magnificent because it captures the complexity of this world in, 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 such, a, in such an important way. You bring out the humanity of that's, an image that most people wouldn't have seen. That's, that's, the, that's absolutely a nailing on the head. The, the, it's the humanity. No matter what's going on in the country, the oppression, you know, the political oppression, the economic um, deprivation, whatever it happens to be, there's still people leading their lives. And they have the same you know, activities, feelings, whatever, as we all do. And there were two uh, kids playing on this concrete table, ping pong, having a great time. They didn't have a real ping pong table. They didn't have a real net, but they could have cared less. They're smiling. They're happy. And uh, they're doing what kids do. Where and, was this, this particular photo? East Berlin. That was East Berlin. Yeah, and, East Berlin uh, is so different now. Yeah, 1977. But that, that's what was interesting always is the humanity is world you know is a worldwide thing i mean everybody is um trying to make a living the kids are trying to have fun and learn and uh they go to sports events everything's the same except the government right. that they live under and what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do everything is the same you know there were boys back then chasing girls correct uh, i remember you know i was in eastern europe doing my own chasing of girls as well um was sex and love better back then uh this is a wonderful image um of a young couple in a warsaw park it seems i mean i spent a lot of time in eastern europe in the in the late 70s and 80s it seemed as if in some of the east european writers especially the czech writers focused on this most people in this politically repressive world spent most of their time having sex didn't they uh there's <laughs> yes I, I mean, much I, better. I was, Sex was much was, better yeah, under communism was, than it is under capitalism. I think. Right, right. I mean, I mean to be foolish about. I mean to speak foolishly. I mean, there were, weren't a lot of. There wasn't a lot of entertainment. Okay, films. There yeah. were propaganda films. They, you know, there were dances and whatever. But you know, there was a lot of drinking, and I assume, uh, knowing nothing from personal experience, but there was, you know, there was a lot of. Uh, sexual interplay, especially with younger people. So, certainly. Uh, these days, from what I hear, Arthur, young people don't have sex. Maybe it's because of the internet or because we no longer have communism. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting way. There's, there's much more to do today. You know, you can have your face on a phone, you can be playing video games, 
Um, yeah, it's a completely different world. And I've read that recently also. Can't understand it at all, but apparently... And the photographer. I mean, some of your work's magnificent. This this photo of an early morning fog at a key in Yalta in, of course, Ukraine in 1987 is a magnificent photo. How did you get that? Were you just wandering around with your camera and you suddenly captured this masterpiece? Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, what, was, what happened was... Uh, Generally, I was working for a news magazine uh, when I went to these countries. And this particular episode, and we mentioned Rick Smolin earlier, I was doing the... Yeah, the Rick's an old friend of Arthur, and I know him, a very distinguished photojournalist, photographer, and tech guy. Uh, anyway, he, uh, Rick's a great guy, and he put together these Dan Light books in, early, in the early 80s. First one was Day in Life of Australia. And this was in 87. We were doing two books, Day in Life of Spain and Day in Life of the Soviet Union. And my assignment was to go to Yalta, which was in Crimea, which is at that time was part of the USSR, then was part of Ukraine, and I was part of Russia. Anyway, I had um, things were changing behind the Iron Curtain at that time. It was starting to loosen up. It was starting to get more freedoms. And the uh, guide who was with me, the minder, was much different than they had been 10 years before or five years before. And he could, uh, he went out of his way to make sure that I got the pictures I want, I could go where I wanted. And when you're working on these books, it's a day in the life. So if you do it honestly, Fantastic photo though, and, and it's wonderful. you get up in the morning and you go somewhere the minute the sun comes up, and so this is what happened. I went. What down. were you shooting in, uh, Arthur, back then? What 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 camera captured this? So is it not really important to worry about the camera? You just need the good photographer. No, no. Could have done this with an iPhone, could you? Yeah, actually, you could have, but it would look different. This is the difference between digital and film. It's a huge issue now of what it looks like. You know, good uh, Tri-X film looks completely different. Whatever, whatever to whatever you're getting. You know, on digital. I like the, the comparison between vinyl and um, vinyl and digital when it comes to music. That vinyl right. might not be literally in in technological terms as good, but it has more depth, more meaning, more humanity somehow in it. Yeah, there's a different feel to it, and what people are doing now to get off the subject. But anyway, I was up early and I took this picture with a Leica and a 35 millimeter lens on Triax film. Uh, but what people are trying to do now, photographers is to make digital look like film in black and white. That's Post like Instagram. That's what Instagram's trying to do, isn't it? Yeah, they're trying to be, exactly. But it's very difficult. I know some very famous photojournalists who have, you know, hired people, uh, computer programmers, whatever, to, to come up with a formula to make Tri-X, I mean, to make digital look like Tri-X. And um, that's what a lot of photojournalists are trying to do. If you look at uh, photographs coming out of uh, Ukraine right now, uh, you look at them, whether in the New Yorker, wherever they happen to be, if they're being converted to black and white, there's a smoothness to the pictures, okay? There's just a creamy quality to it that no matter if it's black and white or not, it just doesn't have that grit, even though the, the photographs are as gritty as can be and as you know real as can be. It's tough being um, a photojournalist these days, Arthur, isn't it? I, I mean, it was always tough. It was a, Everybody wanted to do it, and there were only 
a few lucky guys like you who got to work for time and become famous photographers. But the the uh, professional photo industry has been decimated by the digital revolution, hasn't it? That's correct, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, it has. And f- if you talk to even advertising photographers, photojournalists, the advent you know of digital, and especially the iPhone, has taken away business from everybody. And you know, there, there, let's say there's a fashion campaign from you know Chanel, or I'm just making this up, at some uh, fashion house. They find some 24 year old, 22 year old um, man or woman with an iPhone who's quote edgy, you know, and they're using their iPhone upside down or, or in a different way, and it's, it has a lot of freedom to it. It has a different look, and they're getting the assignments and they're getting the campaigns. Now, the great fashion photographers and uh, celebrity photographers or portraitists, they still, you know, get the work, obviously. Any Leibovitz, uh, name any fashion photographer, but Watson, whatever, they're getting the work because of who they are and, you know, great talent. And But for people, you know, who are not on that level, that tier of success, it's a much different story. Very yeah. different. We, 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 we got to talk a little politics, Um Arthur here. I mean, when everyone thinks of the Cold War, they think of Tim Pot dictators. We, of course, have our own Tim Pot dictators now. But you have a couple of wonderful photos of these Ceausescu rallies in Romania. He was the, the most Tim Pot of the Tim Pot dictators in the Cold War. Right. Uh, talk us through some of these these political photos. Well, well Orwellian in, in, in the black and white obedience of them. Right. It's about the, um, the supreme leader, okay, the strong leader. Um, that's what these countries were, fascists. They had the supreme leader, and you fell into line. And they had you know, secret police and you know, uh, people in the army behind them, and you were marching in step if you wanted to have a good life with these people. So when, when there was, this is the anniversary, 100th anniversary of the quote independence of Romania. And they had festivities and uh, parades and marches and, and uh, soccer stadiums. And what was amazing to me is the usual, the, the Ceausescu would talk for an hour. He had like 18 sheets of typewritten paper. Have we got a, are we returning to that in, in Hungary? We have Orban in the United States, Trump. There's something very Trumpian about Ceausescu or perhaps something very Ceausescu-like about Trump. Um, right. Do you think that history is returning, Arthur? Certainly. If, if you start, you know, in Romania, I mean, in Hungary now, the judiciary is being affected uh, by Orban. The press is being affected by Orban. Those are two huge things that are going on in Poland also. And that's the move towards autocracy. The minute you say the press is the enemy of the people, that's a slippery slope. Then what do you believe? Um, it, and, uh, you know, as far as elections, the judiciary, you know, is holding fast in the United States. Hopefully we'll continue to do so, although people are questioning certain things in the Supreme Court. Yeah, these are these are major signals, you know, flashing red lights that people in this country um, should pay attention to um, and, and keep track of. 
Arthur, the, the, the real heroes of the Cold War age, at least from the point of view of regimes like Ceausescu, was the working class. You have some wonderful images for people watching this, an image of um, uh, uh, three female workers, or there are as many women workers, I think, in, Eastern, in, in Cold War Eastern Europe as male, uh, a blacksmith pausing for a cigarette outside Krakow in 1989, is there a special dignity from from a f- photographic point of view of yes, the workers yes. and of the working yes. class? Totally and completely. And that's because they're the hardworking people who make the country run. I mean, put food on the table, fix your car, whatever it happens to be. Well, these women were steel workers at the Lenin steel plant. So you have enormous respect for them. They get up in the morning early, they send their kids to school, they pack a lunch or they get it at work and they work an honest day, you know, at the plant or on the farm. And at night, what they want is to be with their family, their friends, have a beer, a vodka and enjoy life. But they are the hardworking people. They are absolutely. And I mean, uh, there was some, would it be fair to say that you know, they, they had very good health systems here? We have a couple of images of two medical workers in Romania and then of a doctor. There were aspects of East European life that we should be nostalgic about. Well, yeah, everybody had um, medical care. Everyone had access to decent doctors and for all the injustices of the political system, the socioeconomic one, everyone was treated equally badly, but at least they had decent access to health care in contrast with a place like America. They did. But as Richard Hornick, who wrote the introduction of my book, really perceptive introduction, says that they paid a price for all that. That's that was the problem. Yes, they, they had a job and they had medical care and they had a few other things that, that the government prompt housing, but they didn't have freedom. And so that's a huge... It's funny you bring up the word freedom. Um, uh, I had Leah Upi, uh, a woman teaches political philosophy at London School of Economics. She has a new book out, Free. She she grew up in Albania. I don't know if you spend any time in Albania. Uh, her book is called Free. And there's an element of nostalgia in her work for what she sees as the socialism of the pre-neoliberal age. Let, let's end with a, a couple of notes on the military. Lots of images of um, military figures. One of the most memorable, I think, of this coat stand full of military uh, caps. This was a highly militarized society, wasn't it, Arthur? Correct. There was the visible part of uh, authoritarianism, which was the army the army, uh, the military, and then there was the other half, which were the secret police, the state security. Um, And yeah, between those two, they had a grip on the country. Um, In terms of if there was, you know, terrible rioting or something like that, the army would come in. Uh, In Poland, when they had uh, disruptions and big demonstrations that turned uh, confrontational, they would have the Zomo come in, which is paramilitary police, and they'd knock heads and use water cannon, et cetera. In another era, in another era, they use bullets, um, and in the army to come in and. Uh, how, how would it work in terms of a photograph like this? It looks so natural, but of course, the most natural photos are always the most staged. Were you just wandering around and you saw this this yeah. coat stand full of hats and you just Correct. snapped it, or did you spend some time on it? No, no, no. What's interesting is you showed that uh, Ceausescu uh, anniversary 
in the uh, auditorium, this huge auditorium or whatever it was. Um, I was I, I shot the pictures. I had freedom of movement in that huge crowd, you see. I was bored out of my mind. So I, I just wandered. Like off. everybody else. I mean, yeah, there's it, nothing it, more boring right. than listening to Ceausescu, probably listening to Trump, perhaps. Yeah, no, but they were, you know, had to pay attention, smile, clap at the right time. So I walked out of the hall and was just looking for other pictures. And I came across that coat rack, you see, and I thought it was very interesting, all the military caps mm. on the coat rack. Is there a favorite one, finally, Arthur, of all the ones we've shown? There are lots of others. It's a wonderful book. Congratulations. It's a That's must have cool. for anyone who cares either about photography, contemporary photography, the cold, and particularly in Cold War, Eastern Europe. Is there one in particular, if you could keep one that I've shown today? Yeah, it, well, actually, I don't think it's been on the screen yet. It's the one of uh, in uh, Warsaw in the early evening with uh, a crowd of people looking very solemn, holding their arms up and their hands in the V sign for Is resistance. That it? This one? That's the one. Because it took great courage. It's the courage of the people. What year was this in Poland? This was 1982, after martial law. I was in, in Poland in 81 at the, during the rise of solidarity. It was in Gdansk with Wolensen, all that uh, story. But I came back in March, during martial law, right after martial law in January, February. And, and then they would demonstrate um, and show their resistance by gathering like this peacefully. And they were taking a chance. They could be pulled off the street, arrested, et cetera, lose their jobs. And these were people who were willing to stand up to oppression, repression. Yeah, it's a magnificent photo. What, what, my reading of the man, and again, for people not watching, you can only imagine this. You need to either watch this or get Arthur's book. It's a kind of resignation, an exhaustion, but also... He's looking as if I have to do this. This is inevitable. Perhaps I'll get into trouble, but I, I have no choice. Is that your reading of his face? Totally and completely. That's correct. But this he knows and everybody in that crowd knows there will be no change unless you get out into the street. And that's a message for everybody around the world and any democracy. If you don't like what's going on to do a peaceful demonstration and get out into the street. No one had rocks and bottles. Or they just peacefully went out. Right. They didn't have the internet. In, in Poland, they just had mimeograph machines just That's correct. turning That's out very primitive newspapers. Right. And they were handed out by hand you know, to people and delivered that way. All right. It's great stuff, Arthur. I'm thrilled you've done this. Uh, wonderful new book, Communism's a Cold War album. You've had many other books and maybe come on the show and talk about some of your american photography but this one really struck a chord with me because as i said i've spent a lot of time in eastern europe in another life uh so for me this was particularly resonant uh congratulations on the book keep well okay. keep shooting you're still shooting arthur uh not that much i have uh, i need to get, get you out time. again maybe send you back to eastern europe <laughs> okay we'll see Thanks very much. It's great having me on your show. Thanks.